I'd love you to turn to Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4. Everyone gets their phones out. Out of interest, who has got their Bible with them? Oh, we've got a few. We go. That's good. Well, welcome to the summer. This is officially the summer, as Rogerio is demonstrating over there. So, um, uh, yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'll, uh, I'll read the story and then we'll get going. Here we go. So, 2 Kings chapter 4. Let me just check. Is this working? Good. The wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know how he revered the Lord. But now a creditor has come and is taking my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbours for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring When the jars were full, she said to her sons, bring me another one. But he replied, there isn't another jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Okay, so over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at five different stories from the life of this man of God called Elisha. So in a, in a few minutes, I'll get right into this story, the widow's oil. But I thought it'd be good to, to start by setting some of the um, context of Elisha's situation and some of the historical background. Because actually, once we know a little bit more about Elisha and the situation he was facing, we can uh, appreciate some of the challenges that he was going through at the time. So Elisha and his predecessor, Elijah, who's probably the more famous of the two, They were prophets of God to the people of Israel. And that meant their job was to uh, bring, hear what God had to say to Israel and then speak it out to the nation of Israel. But they had a big problem, and that was that the Israelites, the people of Israel, had rejected God. They had rejected Yahweh. They rejected um, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And instead they decided, we want to go and worship idols that we've made ourselves. And so, um, as a prophet, that was a tough gig, (laughs) talking to a bunch of people. I'm hoping most people want to hear what I've got to say. (laughs) But for prophets, people didn't want to hear what they had to say. So best case scenario, if you're a prophet, is you speak the word of God and the people of Israel just put their fingers in their ears. Worst case scenario is you speak the word of God and they put you to death. And it was was that serious and a lot of prophets were being put to death (laughs) by the people of God, by the people of Israel in that time. It's quite shocking, really. It hadn't always been like that under King David and Solomon, who didn't live too far um, before them, about maybe 80, 90 years before. Under King David and Solomon, Israel had been a, a united kingdom that served and loved Yahweh. And it was made up, you probably know, of 12 tribes, 12 geographical tribes. And right at, at the bottom in the south, was Jerusalem, the capital city. And Jerusalem was really important to the people of Israel um, 
partly because of the, um, the amount of business that took place in that place. Um, also, the king, King Solomon, built all his palaces there and they were the envy of the world. And a couple of weeks ago, I think Vic talked about this as well, how people from uh, all the neighbouring countries or, or from even further would come and just envy at how glorious this place, uh, Jerusalem, was. But most of, importantly, Israel, uh, sorry, Jerusalem was the place where God said you can build a temple to God, to Yahweh. You see, for years, the presence of God had lived in a tent, and finally God said, now you can build a temple. And so they build a temple, and you probably know the story. Um, the, the priests come in to do the job, and uh, the presence and the power of God was so present in that place that they couldn't do it. All they could do was fall on the ground and worship God. And in many ways, that is the pinnacle of Israel's history. And from then on, it just goes downhill pretty quickly. You see, what happens is um, these tribes, uh, the ones in the north, started complaining and saying, why do we pay all these taxes to the king, but all the money goes down south? Does this remind you of anything? <laughs> it's all going down south, and so they want autonomy, and they want independence, okay? It's very similar to our situation, isn't it? And so, um, and, and there's a kind of uh, wrangling going on, and then eventually when Solomon dies, it starts getting very serious, and there's a civil war, and the, the nation gets split in two. The nation of Israel gets severed. And so instead of one nation, there's now two kingdoms. Down south, you have a kingdom made up of two of the tribes, um, Benjamin and Judah, and that becomes known as the southern kingdom, or Judah. Um, and up north, you have ten kingdoms, um, and that becomes known as the northern kingdom, or Israel. And in, in, these, in this book that we're reading, uh, Kings, you can read Kings 1 and 2. And can I just say, if you're looking for some reading, over the, some Bible reading over the holiday, why don't you go through 1 and 2 Kings? And what you'll find is it kind of tracks the progress of these, it used to be one kingdom, but now two kingdoms. You've got Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And basically it tells you how it does. And in general it tells us that the southern kingdom, or, or Judah, does well. Because it stays close to God. It's got Jerusalem, and so they keep worshipping at the temple. And uh, more or less, although there's a couple of exceptions, the kings do really well. And they stay faithful to God. But in the north, Israel, and Elisha is a prophet to the nation of Israel, very, very quickly, in fact, the first king, Jeroboam, says, we're going away from Yahweh. We're giving up on him. Okay. See, what happened was, he, Jeroboam thought to himself, I don't want all the people in this nation of Israel going down south to Judah to worship God. So what we'll do is we'll build up our own places, and they called them high places, places of worship. But instead of giving them and devoting them to worship of, of Yahweh, they, they adopted instead the, nation, like the, worship, the idols of other nations from the surrounding areas, so uh, Baal and Asher. And they even built up some... Um, some calves, some golden calves, like they did at the bottom of Mount Sinai, and started worshipping those. So very quickly, the nation of Israel turned its back away from God and said, we don't want anything to do with Yahweh anymore, we're going for our own thing. So after just a few years, it's so bad that Elijah thinks he's the only person in the whole of the nation of Israel who is worshipping Yahweh now. And he comes to God and he says, 
I have been, I've completely lo lost track of these. Sorry, are you right to keep me going with them? <clears throat> he comes to God and says, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the swords. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So according to Elijah, there is nothing left in Israel. Other than him, there is no one worshipping Yahweh. But then God says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So even in Israel's darkest, the darkest part of Israel's history, God's saying, although they're being completely unfaithful to me and, and they've decided to reject me, I'm going to stay faithful and I'm going to keep a remnant. I'm going to keep 7,000 faithful to me. Now Elisha, the guy we're looking at over the next five weeks, He's Elijah's apprentice. So he goes around with Elijah and helps him out and everything. And um, eventually God says to Elijah, you've done a really good job. I'm going to take you up to glory and I'm going to get Elisha to be my main prophet from now on. Okay? So Elisha, Elisha says, great, that sounds good. Elijah says, brilliant, I'm very happy about that. Elisha, how can I help you? And Elisha famously says, I want a double portion of your blessing." And often we look at that and think, man, Elisha, he's a bit of an arrogant so-and-so. But actually what this was about, this is about inheritance. You see, if a man, when a man um, was about to die, if he had three sons, he'd split all his wealth into four, and the two youngest would get a portion each, and the oldest would get a double portion. So effectively what Elisha was saying is, I want to I be your number one son. I want to keep the family business going. And that's exactly what he does. And they're very similar in many ways. So Elijah, for example, caused, um, uh, caused the uh, River Jordan to split in two. And so does Elisha. Elijah caused a widow's son to be risen from the dead. And so did Elijah, Elisha. Elijah caused oil to carry on pouring and pouring out of just a, a single tub. And so in our story today, so does Elisha. So there's lots of similarities. There are also lots of differences. So Elijah... Um, he kind of, he had lots of big fights, almost on a, a, a kind of spiritual level with kings and with um, <coughs> the priests of, of, uh, of idols and stuff like that. And, uh, but then once he'd done that, he would be very introverted, want to be on his own. He was a bit depressive. Elisha, when I read the stories, I get the impression he, he kind of enjoys the job a little bit more. Okay. He loves to, to bring the blessing of God into situations. He loves to do things quite dramatically. And quite, he likes to sh make a little bit of a show of it. Um, except for if you call him bald. And uh, <laughs> then he'll call angry bears onto you. So be careful with that. So, so he, but in, in the main, he loved to just bring the blessing and the hope of God into whatever situation he came across. And in that sense, I would say Elisha is like a foreshadow of Jesus. And you think of Jesus, and he talked to the, the echelons, and he talked to the leaders... But he also, he just loved bringing blessing and hope and glory into situations. And I hope over the next five weeks, we'll see that Elisha was very similar. He was a foreshadow. In the darkest time, God was saying, I'm going to send someone who is going to bring the blessing and the hope and the kingdom of God back again. Amen. So, as we kind of start our story today, I actually, after talking for ages about Elisha, I want to switch our focus onto this widow I only kind of properly met her a few weeks ago, but she's incredible. 
She really is. She, she makes some courageous decisions, even though she's going through the bleakest of circumstances, to be faithful to God. And I find it awesome. I find it amazing. No, number one decision, decision she makes is, despite facing terrible circumstances, she chooses to run to God rather than run away. Secondly, she chooses to recognise what she does have rather than what she doesn't. And thirdly, she chooses to be obedient rather than to say, oh, actually, I'll try and work this all out myself. Okay, so three things. Let's start from verse one. One day, the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Well, welcome to the summer. This is a nice, happy start to a story, isn't it? It's not. It's quite dramatic. Well, now we know at the end, everything, you know, pretty much. It's not triumphalistic. She still has to go through stuff. But we know at the end, God does some amazing things and her life is, is transformed as a result. But where the story starts is very bleak indeed. She's got, her husband has died. She's in severe financial ruin. And she's at risk of losing her children. I wouldn't wish one of those on anyone, but she's got all three of those things coming to her at one time. <laughs> Bam. That's painful. And uh, as I read the first verse, I get the sense that she's not just, she's not just sad or upset. There's an anger or a disillusionment, a frustration, a confusion in, in the way she speaks. You see, she says, my husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. And I get a sense that it's not just, oh, my life is bad. She's asking, what on earth is going on here? How has this happened? So we have to understand some things about this lady as well. She was one of the 7,000, her and her family. She must have been one of those people that despite a nation turning its way from God and saying, we don't want to know anything about Yahweh, they stood firm and said, no, we're putting our trust, we're putting everything into Yahweh. We will not bow down to Baal. We will not, we refuse to kiss him. We're going to carry on being faithful to Yahweh. In a nation that's gone away, they've stood firm. Not only that, they're not just kind of sitting by thinking, oh, isn't this nation going to pot? Her husband was a prophet calling the people back, saying, where are you going? Come back to Yahweh, looking to bring the blessing and the kingdom of God back into Israel. They had given everything to God. So can you understand why she's cross <laughs> and angry and a bit confused when she loses her husband and as a result she's in financial ruin and is about to lose her, her children. I can understand why she can come to the, the prophet and be like, what is going on? I, um, recently I heard a, a, a talk from Terry Virgo at Catalyst. He was doing these morning sessions, like Bible studies. And he talked about, um, uh, he talked about the book of Philippians. And um, I don't, if you know the book of Philippians, it was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in chains. And the thing about Philippians is it's just so joyful and happy. And you kind of think, how can a man who's in chains and in prison be so joyful and happy? And Terry Virgo asked a question, which I thought, that's 
That's interesting. And uh, I thought I'd ask you it today. And if you're, I don't know if anyone takes notes. If you're taking notes, maybe write this question down. His question was, does your theology of God allow for suffering? Does your, does your understanding of who God is allow for the fact that he sometimes lets us go through times of suffering and trial? You see, sometimes we, we kind of make, uh, we make this jump. God is loving, ki- kind. He brings blessing. He brings hope. He brings joy. He brings peace. And all of this kind of thing. And we make a jump and say, therefore, God can't allow suffering. And that's the, that's the question of the age, isn't it? How can a good God allow suffering? The Bible never promises that God won't let us go through suffering. It's a jump that, our, our jump that uh, if, if God is good, then, then he will never allow us to suffer. That's something we've made up. It's not something that's in the Bible. And what I love about this situation is when this, when this lady realises that she's lost everything, she doesn't just say, oh, are you allowed to say sod when you're preaching? <laughs> 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 Forget you. <laughs> I'm going this way. Sorry. Um, sorry if it offends. Uh, I'm going this way, yeah? What she does instead is she says, I'm suffering, and she goes to God. Let's get serious. <laughs> Sorry. And I just wondered, what, what would happen to you if any one of those things that happened to her happened? Your husband dies. You're, you're in financial ruin. And you're, you're about to lose your children. Any, any, any one of those. And, and there's hundreds of other problems that we go through every day. Any one of those would, could really do damage to your faith. It really could. And my question is, what would happen to you? You see, in, that, in the midst of that, and she had all three of those happening at once, she decided, I'm not going to run away from God, I'm going to run to God in this situation. It's very challenging. Psalm 34, uh, from verse 17, says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person might have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Let me read that in a slightly different way. God never promises that the righteous will never cry out, but he does promise that he will hear them and deliver them from their troubles. The Bible doesn't promise that you will never be broken-hearted. And there's probably everyone in this room can point to times where they've been broken-hearted. The Bible doesn't promise you'll never be broken-hearted, but it does promise that the Lord is close to you when you're broken-hearted. It doesn't say that he won't let you be crushed in spirit. Sounds worse than broken-hearted, crushed in spirit. But it does say, I will save you when you're crushed in spirit. It doesn't say the righteous person will never have any troubles. It says the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. When you go through your time of trouble, your time of pain, your your time of hardship, 
Your, I think uh, St. John of the Cross calls it the dark night of the soul. <laughs> when you go through that, what are you going to do? Are you going to run away from God and say, forget this? God, where were you? Or are you going to be like this lady who, through gritted teeth, said, I'm, I'm going to go to God and get my answers on this. We have to be people that run to God in those situations and not run away from him. So she runs and she goes to the, the prophet of God and he says, what can I do to help? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of olive oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbours. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jar, setting each one aside as it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after the other. Soon every container was filled to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he said. And the olive oil stopped flowing. I'm just going to have a drink. I've, I think... Um, I want to talk about faith for a little while. And I think God loves to see a little bit of faith in us. Often I go home at lunchtime, very quick, you will pay me, so I, I, I don't take long. But the first thing I, I normally do, uh, other than saying hello to Ali, is um, I go to the fridge and I open the door and I, I'm going to tell a family secret now. I, I look in and I go, ah. Oh. And when I go, ah, oh, it's actually, I'm trying to get Ali's attention. And, uh, and I go, ah. <laughs> and uh, and she, she, she might come up and say, what's wrong? I say, oh, it's the fridge. There's nothing in it. It's, it's That's me holding the door. By the it's, it's empty, completely empty. I should go, there must be something in there. And I'm, I'm like, no, it's, it's, like, it's a frozen desert. In there. It's, it's terrible. And she'll, um, and she'll say, well, let me come and have a look. And I'll, I'll say, okay, come and have a look. And then she'll say, well, look in there. What can you see? <laughs> Tell me, what, what, what do we have in the fridge? And I'll say, well, there's some eggs in the door. Carry on. <laughs> there's a bit of bacon. Keep looking. Oh, there's some sausages. Keep looking. There's some bird's eye potato waffles in the, <laughs> in the freezer. And she'll look at me and say, get every pat, pat, pan and pot you can find. Put oil in it. We're going to make the best fry up we've ever had. Yes. You see, when, when I look into a fridge, I just see emptiness. It's bleak. What I was hoping to be there wasn't there. When Ali looks into a fridge, she sees potential. She sees ingredients. And she's like, yeah, come on, let's do this. And I love the fact that this lady bothers to say, I've got some oil. Her husband's dead. She's in severe financial ruin and she's about to lose her children. The man of God says, what have you got in your house? A bit of oil? What does, in an in eBay generation who would sell anything they could, they know, actually, no, this isn't working. But I think, I think she was a woman of God. She had heard what Elijah had done and thought, oh, Elisha, you think you're a man of God? I've got some oil here as well. What could you do with that? 
And, and it's, it's like God just loves to see the little bits of faith. I was reading recently Matthew 8, verses 9. I don't know if I can say recently. It was a few weeks ago now. But um, uh, Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And what struck me about it was in every single... Uh, there's a dense kind of passage of um, miracles, loads of different types of miracles. And in every single one of them, other than two, Jesus looks for faith from the person asking for the miracle. I'll give you a couple of examples. Matthew 8, verse 5 says, A centurion uh, comes to Jesus. My servant, he says, is at home and is suffering terribly. So Jesus says, Well, shall I come to your house and heal him? And he says, No, just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus says, I have never seen more faith in the whole of Israel. And then instantly, the, uh, the servant's healed. Matthew 9, verse 27. Two blind men come to Jesus and say, Have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus says, Do you believe that I'm able to heal you? Yes, Lord. And Jesus says, According to your faith, let it be done to, your, let it be done to you. So he touched their eyes and they're healed. According to your faith. And in this dense passage of kind of miracle after miracle, there's only two situations... Where, um, where he doesn't ask for, for permission. The first time is when a, a deaf and mute man who is also demon-possessed comes up to him, and you can kind of forgive him for just sorting that out himself. And the second, the second one is when they're in a ship or a boat, and there's a storm, and it's raging, and the, 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 men, the uh, disciples get up and say, Jesus, we're about to die. And what does he do at that point? He rebukes them for their lack of faith. That's the only, <laughs> the only two occasions where he's not looking for faith. And I, I sincerely believe that God is always looking for our faith in any given situation. That we're able, uh, maybe in a bleak situation, to be able to say, well, here's, here's the little bit of hope in this situation. Here's the pot of oil in the situation. And so perhaps... You find yourself at work thinking, man, this place is godless. It's terrible. The language, the way people speak, the bitchiness, everything is terrible. What is going on in this place? God, I want to get out of here. Whereas I think God would say, well, where's the pot of oil? And most times, we're probably the pot of oil in the situation. Actually, perhaps you can do something, or you could ask God, God, can, if, I, if I just pray, will, will you be able to use that? Or if I just um, bring a little bit of joy or, or a bit of hope into, into my workplace, will you be able to use that? If you help me build my relationship with my, my boss, maybe we can sort out some of the ways that people talk to one another around here. And instead of looking at the bleakness of a situation, suddenly we're looking at the, the hope. Is this all right? <laughs> um, the hope and I've, I really believe that God wants us as a church to learn about faith over the last few weeks it's, it's, it's been kind of very obvious that God is speaking to us about faith when Angela came three weeks ago she talked about the faith faith the, the size of a mustard seed and her point wasn't we've got at the moment we've got faith the size of a nano seed and we want to grow it to the point of mustard that's not her point. Her point is we've got that faith and we just need to learn to use it. It was kind of um, 
you know, faith is an adjective, not a verb. Uh, sorry, faith is a verb, not an adjective. We've got to, we've got to move in our faith, not just believe. We've got to do something about it. And then last week, um, there were four, maybe, words that came through the worship time, and all of them were on faith. Someone brought a word about f- uh, faith for healing. Another one uh, brought, I think it was Anne Malice, a, a, a word about faith for the journey, like Abraham put his trust and faith in God. And John Woods talked about the, f- the faith, having faith in Jesus Christ. It's not like a, a kind of a wishful hope that things might get sorted. Jesus has done the stuff and therefore we can have faith. And then, um, you know, over the next, uh, from, sep- from September, we're going to be um, doing a week, uh, sorry, a month of, um, of praying, okay, a month of prayer. And I believe God would want us to learn about faith in, those, in that time. Not just faith that may be, uh, you know, praying for the different things that we're asking for, but faith that actually God can teach us how... Sorry, I don't know what I'm talking about. Not just faith in the sense of God, we're praying for this and that and this and that, but actually we learn something new about faith as a church. And I, I want to give another example. This will kind of help me. Um, the, uh, the other day I was talking to Rogerio. I've been talking to Rogerio for about six, nine months, about, in particular about his kids at school. And they've been umming and ahhing. They, they're... Kids go to a good school, I should say that, because there's pe- people that work there. Here. Um, they go to a good school, but it's not, it's not a faith school. And so they've been um and ah in thinking to themselves, uh, you know, God's given us our children, therefore, should we be sending them to a school that, that promotes their faith? It's a good question, and um, I'm not here to cast judgments or kind of make a point about whether that's right or wrong or, or whatever. But they were, they were just asking that question and, um, and so they, they pushed a few jo- doors and they got offered a place in a great school where God's doing great things for all three of their kids to go but they still weren't completely at peace and they were praying and in the end they, they kind of looked at the situation and said God I know this situation spiritually speaking is, is bleak God is not in that school officially <laughs> um, but Lord perhaps you could use us in some kind of way Perhaps you can use uh, us on the school gate. Perhaps you can use us, our children. Okay? And, uh, and so they eventually made the decision to keep their kids at the school that they were at. And uh, well, the reason I tell you this story is because um, a couple of weeks ago they got their, um, their reports. And uh, I'll try not to cry because I just think it's amazing. So they've, they've made the decision... We're going to keep our children in this school and just pray that maybe God uses them like a pot of oil in this situation to bring the blessing and the hope of God into that school. And so I asked Rogerio, oh, how, how's it been going? And they got a report, their reports. And Bella's one said, she's very passionate about her faith and often shares personal experience that enrich her peers and others around her. Isn't that great? Mandy Best report says, she's proud of her religion and she, ha- she happily shares information about this at school. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. You see, that's, that's, that's an example of someone saying, it's looking bleak, but perhaps, God, you can use this little pot of oil. 
And then that school, slowly but surely, is going to get transformed because of it. It's amazing. And I thank you, God, for that. And well done, Rogerio and Anne-Marie. I think it's really good. So the first, the first thing the lady does right is that she, um, she comes to God and despite severe situation, she comes to God rather than running away from him. And the second thing she does is um, she recognises what she has rather than just saying, oh, this is looking bleak. And um, I'm not actually going to... I'd like us to respond. I'd like to give some time to respond. So I'll just quickly say what I was going to say on the third point, which was basically, she was obedient. Can you imagine how embarrassing? Okay, so they've come, she's come to the prophet of God with a problem, and he said, okay, right, go to your neighbours and ask for as many pots and pans as you possibly can, and don't ask for just a few. How embarrassing would that be? How weird would that be? I'm, I, you know, knocking on your neighbour's door. Put yourself at home right now. <laughs> You've got to go to your neighbour. Can I have all your pots and pans and potties, whatever, whatever you can put stuff in, because God's going to do a miracle. It, but she did it. She was obedient. And I just, it's a very simple point. Often we come to God with our problems and we say, God, rah, 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 sort this out. And we kind of see it as almost, we've got more faith for a lucky charm type. God, sort my problems out. God doesn't always do that. Sometimes he does come in and say, Phew. But actually, often what he says, okay, here's what I want you to do, okay? And first, first off, our Bibles, sometimes it just feels, this feels so outdated. <laughs> it doesn't feel modern. But just trust it, because it's a lot older than you, it's a lot wiser than you, okay? So, so actually, when you're coming to God with a problem, and he gives you a solution, listen to it. Don't just say, oh, actually, I'll go and sort it out myself. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish there. That was quite a, an obvious point, really. I want to finish with the, um, with the very last line. And it says this. It says, When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, Now sell the olive oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. And just to say that is what the gospel is. Jesus dying on the cross... It was so that he could pay our debt, the debt of sin and all that we had racked up. But not only to pay our debt, but that we can carry on living on what is left over. See, if a, if a person's in debt, then what will happen is um, you could pay off their debt and then you say, well, there you go, you pay off their debt. And then the person's like, well, he hasn't got any more money coming in, so they just get back into debt. Okay? But what, what this man's saying is, I'm going to pay your debt and give you enough to live on what is left over. And actually, what Jesus did on the cross, it paid our debt, but it also gives us the grace to live day by day by day. He's so good to us, isn't he? Amen. He knows what we need. And I just, I, we're going to finish, I think we'll sing a song, and then I don't know what we'll do. But I do think, maybe you've been going through a time of struggle, of hardship, and your question is, God, what are you doing? through this and maybe actually what you need to do I'm not giving you an answer here I'm just saying through gritted teeth come and ask him <laughs> you, you might need to go and, and pray with someone 
Um, I, I don't know if we've got a ministry team. We, you can come to the front and be prayed for. Um, but can I just say as well, if you feel like, actually, I've been through situations and actually I think I could pray in faith for someone else, then I'd love you to make yourself available. Um, where do we pray? Sorry. Yeah? Okay, come to the front. Yeah. Okay, um, I'd love you to come and pray for, for people. And secondly, if you're looking at your situations and, and your, kind of, your kind of instant reaction is, this looks bleak, actually I think God wants to change our mindset so that we're not just seeing at the problem all the time, but we're seeing the potential, yeah? The ingredients in the fridge or the, the little pot of oil in the situation. And I think, I think if we can start doing that more as a church, actually our faith will grow and we'll start to see a lot more happening so um, yeah if Paul do you want to start with a song and then